the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk joins me to talk about the Delta virus, the protest of Alberta's doctors, and the Petri dish that is Provincetown in the U.S. Also, how about those Montreal Canadiens, eh? Je ne sais pas, incroyable. And your notes and emails too. The Sunday Night Health Show starts now. Well, there's uh, an Olympic winner from my hometown. Now I'll just have to let you guess what that is. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am your host, Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse. I'm also a nurse continence advisor and a sexual health educator. Tonight on the program, we are talking about sex after a heart attack. You didn't think you could do it. Well, tune in. Stay with me. Leaking urine in men. Also, the letter that I wrote to the Montreal Canadiens, dealing with trauma and much more. If you would like to be a part of the program, please give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well. Or feel free to email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. And I am going to read some of your emails tonight. Although we cover a variety of health subjects on the program, the show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. Tonight on the program, we have lots to talk about. But right now. And now Maureen's Health Headline. You've heard his voice before many a times. He is the assistant professor of viral pathogenesis in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. He studies emerging and re-emerging viruses, including Ebola and COVID-19. He is none other than Dr. Jason Kindrichuk. Thank you so much for joining me this evening, Dr. Kindrichuk. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, the listeners certainly missed you and your knowledge <laughs> last week. Whenever you're not here, they miss you. Um, well, it, it's good because, listen, the, the other Dr. Kinnerchuk uh, would, would certainly like to have some of that time alone, I think, sometimes. <laughs> um, well, they're like, where's your co-host? <laughs> I get emails <laughs> like that. What happened to your co-host? Is he okay? <laughs> Anyway, lots going on in the world of uh, coronavirus. I want to say that uh, you are a scientist. You are somebody who studies this, unlike a lot of the people out there who say they don't want to get a vaccine. I I heard recently somebody say uh, she was about 24 years old, and she said, there's not enough science. And I said, oh, so what science have you reviewed to date? (laughs) She said, well, I listened to the news. It's like, okay, well, that's actually not science. So if you wanted to actually read some publications, you might go to PubMed or clinicaltrials.gov.org to see what has been been done. So I, I really very much appreciate all the work that you have done. So how surprised were you uh, given Alberta's COVID uh, measures being relaxed uh, this week or in a few weeks yeah. with the announcement? I it's a great question, right? And certainly, listen, I had, I had quite a few of, of my colleagues got in touch with me, you know, that afternoon or messaged me privately that afternoon and said, you know, can you believe this? And it, it took about 24 hours to kind of let it sink in. I think that certainly we were all shocked, right? Maybe not so shocked about the idea of, of certainly losing up restrictions and, and, and going to the idea of, okay, we're gonna, you know, we're going to reduce masks and we're going to open everything, uh, wide, you know, wide open. 
But it's the aspect of also all the you know contact tracing and public health aspects for for surveillance that also seem to be getting pushed uh, aside. And that that to me is where you you have a lot of concern because now that buffer that you are you know utilizing to to recognize if you're seeing upticks in cases or or where cases are are starting to uh, uh, to show up, those things now are are missing. So your ability to now maneuver very, very quickly and identify cases very quickly with a brand new variant that is moving unbelievably quickly, that is gone. And, and that to me is where I don't get the logic. Um, I, I hope that there are people far smarter than me that are making these decisions. But, but certainly, I, I really am, am still at, at a loss for why they're doing this. And I don't think you're alone in not understanding the logic. Many Alberta doctors are reacting with uh, shock and disappointment and, you know, quite honestly, dismay, especially sure. given the fact that there has been an increase in case numbers and the positivity rate and the R value and their vaccination rates are lagging behind other provinces. So this is quite well, dangerous. It is, right? And listen, we, we know that the vaccines are certainly working, right? Even, you know, even with Delta and, and, and all the concerns we've seen with Delta, certainly with, with what's been going on in the U.S., we, we do see the division between unvaccinated and, and vaccinated in regards to who's showing up in hospitals. But what we need to be appreciative of is that there are entire communities that, that are still lacking vaccines. Certainly we see that in Manitoba. We see that in other areas of, of Canada. This is not a homogenous distribution of unvaccinated people amongst many people that, that are vaccinated around them. And that to me is where the concern lies in is that you're not talking about, you know, potentially a few cases. You're talking about communities that, that may get hit very hard. And now your ability, again, to respond and shut down those outbreaks or shut down transmission are, are removed. And that's very, very difficult then to, to contend with once, once basically the virus is out and, and transmitting widely. Absolutely. And one only has to look to Florida to see what kind of um, decision this this will have um, on Alberta um, and and the people who live there and the people who care about it. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely shocking that um, quarantine for close contacts will no longer be mandatory, but just recommended. As you mentioned, contact tracers will no longer uh, notify close contacts. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, I, I imagine if you're from Alberta, you know, I'd love to hear from you. The number to call is one 399 That's one 399 And, you know, I find I do a little work around COVID and I find that people don't understand it until it affects them, yeah. until they have, um, you know, been infected, um, and, and and especially if it relates to their work, you know, they they might realize that they're going to lose money because they have been a close contact of somebody. And so they actually have to quarantine. Now, many companies are, are paying COVID pay, but but it's not full pay. You know, it's uh, it's generally, you know, 60 to 75 percent. And those are the lucky people. There's other people who, you know, are not being compensated. Um, so, I mean, it, it's extremely dangerous and we look to the U S now what's, what in your opinion is going on down there? Because it does seem to be reemerging. The cases are on the rise in many parts of the country. What happened? The U S was ahead of us. Not, not so long ago. They, they were right. And, and, and I don't quite know what the difference is. I mean, certainly listen, they, they have vaccine manufacturing capacity. They, they were certainly well ahead of us at, at the start of 2021 uptake has been Difficult. Certainly, we've seen uh, you know various regions in the U.S. 
that have moved completely away from the idea of mass mandates and moved away from you know restrictions and and limitations uh, for you know in spite of of a virus that was that was moving through their communities, um, and then we have the the vaccine hesitancy and vaccine reluctance. So I think you're seeing a combination of all these things conglomerating together, and that's when it gets difficult. Is now what we're seeing is that listen, you know, 50% coverage of, of people that have both doses of vaccines may not be enough. Um, so now we get into this question of saying, okay, well, we need to drive it higher. But if you have a reluctant crowd that, that does not want to get vaccinated, how do you do that in, in a very short period of time, especially when, when you're dealing with Delta? So I think if there isn't any single aspect that, that is responsible for this. It's, it really is the combination of a lot of very horrible variables that have come together in a very short period of time. It, it is, and it's such a massive country and um, divided in so many ways. Um, but let me ask you a question. Are, are you wearing a mask these days? <laughs> but hang on one sec yeah. before you answer that. I have a caller on the line. <laughs> uh, we have Carrie Ke- from Calgary on the line. Good evening, Carrie. Good evening. Um, I just wanted to call in and say that what Alberta is doing is interesting. Um, we're just trying to go to living with COVID, but uh, governments have a weird way of doing things the wrong way. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. But yeah. I, I, it feels like... They want to, I mean, it's not about living for Alberta's decision makers. It seems to be about putting their citizens at risk and dying. Well, if the vast majority of people and the vast majority are at least one vaccinated or one dose, one dose vaccinated, about 75% ish, give or take, and 55 ish percent are double dosed. Like, that's pretty good when you think about it. Dr. Kendrachuk? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, no. Go ahead, Carrie. Um, Go ahead. Granted. Well, I know that proper proper herd immunity has to be minimal, 90 to 95%. That's what the peer review research says. But that is an unobtainable goal. It doesn't matter how you try to slice it. And that's what people want. They want perfect instead of good enough. Your thoughts, Dr. Yeah, it's, it's a great conundrum, right? And I think, you know, Kerry certainly hits the, the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's an interesting approach, Um there, there is the aspect of we have to learn to live with a virus, which I think there's there's the idea of living with a virus and, and the virus being endemic and certainly continuing to transmit. Um, but there's also the aspect of trying to minimize transmission in, in the meantime and ensuring that you have basically trends that are conducive to that. And I think to me where I get surprised is certainly we, we know that we need to get uh, fully, you know, or double vaccination uh, rates higher than where they are. We certainly know that there's still hesitancy in, in certain uh, communities. We have to try and ensure that there's a buffer built around those areas. But we also have to try to ensure that that transmission is, is reduced, specifically when we have a, a more transmissible variant. And I think that that's where the shock comes in, is maybe not so much the idea that, yes, it, it is going to be endemic, and it did likely is already endemic, um, but more so that we're taking off the brakes at a time period when 
you know, we are seeing upward trends in, in cases and that that never kind of combines uh, to, uh, you know, to, to result in, I think, an overall positive result at this point in time. So listen, I, I would be love to be proved uh, to, to be uh, proven wrong by this, and that the Alberta approach suddenly works and everything is OK. Um, and I think many other people would feel the same way. But I, I think we're all very, very cautious at this point and very concerned. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. My guest is Dr. Jason Kindrichuk. He's Assistant Professor in Viral Pathogenesis in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kindrichuk. It's always a pleasure to have you. Yeah, and if you have a question for the fine doctor, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. 9898. I, I'd like to talk about that that petri dish that is Provincetown on Cape Cod. It's a quirky little beach town at the tip of Cape Cod. It's a beautiful spot on the planet. Um, and they had thought that the pandemic was over. Uh, they opened up maybe a little bit too soon and uh, had to take a uh, had to snap back, <laughs> quite frankly. And there were some interesting statistics and lots that we could learn from that situation. Um, what were some of the things that were the most surprising, Dr. Kinderchuk? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the most surprising was trying to, to kind of weed through the messaging for most of last week. So there, there was, so we, we knew that there was going to be some data that was going to be coming out uh, that talked about this idea of transmission and, and uh, what, what this looked like in, in regards to Delta and vaccination. Um, so we, we had known about this for a few days. And then, of course, the uh, MMWR paper came out talking about this, you know, this basically this case study that had happened in, in Provincetown. And, and I think that there are a couple of things for us to take away from this. The first thing is that ultimately what we saw were basically hundreds of people that that ended up getting infected. And we have a town uh, and really a cohort of people that are about three quarters of them are, are vaccinated. So very highly vaccinated community. But we, we saw lots of cases. Um, but there's a couple of important things here. I mean, one, is, one of the most important is the fact that there was exceedingly low hospitalizations. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of people with mild disease, but not many people that, that required, uh, you know, onward care in, in hospitals. The second part is there are a lot of variables at play here and, and a lot of things that we can't necessarily address. So certainly when you get, you know, Ashish Jha, uh, Dr. Ashish Jha had a great thread on this talking about, well, what does this mean in regards to infectivity? Well, the likelihood is, that infections actually were kept very low, that what we saw were basically July 4th events, lots of people in, in close proximity to one another. It happened to be very rainy. So a lot of people were pushed indoors uh, in, into larger events in, in, in crowded settings. So you have a perfect breeding ground for the virus to be able to move around from person to person and, and likely increase the, uh, the potential push back against uh, immunity. So Ultimately, infections likely actually were, were kept low based on, on vaccination. Transmission, we don't know yet. Um, certainly, uh, you know, some, some interesting data that came out of there, but a lot of questions uh, to, uh, to still address. But the biggest thing is, is that vaccinations kept people out of, certainly out of the hospital and people mm-hmm. from dying. And I think that's what we really have to appreciate out of this, uh, out of this story. Absolutely. What I'm afraid is that when people hear that and it was 75 percent, I believe, that of uh, yeah. the coronavirus cases were vaccinated and that people are going to say those anti-vaxxers or the people who don't believe in it or think they're going to get a microchip or don't feel there's enough science or whatever, um, they 
that they hear, oh, well, they're vaccinated and they've already they've gotten the virus. So, you know, why should I get vaccinated? That's one of my fears. One hundred percent. Right. And we, we immediately saw that last week. Certainly, I, I did a, a hesitancy panel last week. And that was one of the things that came up. So this question of well, why are we getting vaccinated if people can still get infected? Well, we knew coming out of the, the phase three trials that really the end point that was being tested for was the reduction in severe disease. If we saw reductions in infectivity, that was actually a bonus for us because we didn't know whether that was going to occur or not. Once we got into you know, large-scale uh, you know, global distribution of the vaccines, it actually has shown us that we do continue to see decreased infectivity transmission. People can get breakthrough infections. It's still exceedingly low, like 0.002% of people can you know, show breakthrough infections that, that are vaccinated based on U.S. Mm-hmm. data. Um, but it tells us the vaccines are working. And when you look at the low rates of hospitalizations in, in those people with hundreds of cases, that tells us why we need people to get vaccinated. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. I've asked Dr. Jason Kindertuck to stay on the line a little bit because I wanted to talk about something that everybody seems to want to know, but nobody really knows exactly. Uh, where did the coronavirus stem from? The virus was first detected in Wuhan City, Hubei province in China, and the first infections were linked to a live animal market. There is some recent research out there about animal hosts and reservoir hosts. And, you know, what does this suggest? Dr. Kinderchuk, thanks for staying on the line. Um, tell me a little bit about this information that you sent to me this week. Yeah, it was really interesting. So the, the USDA released uh, basically just a, a briefing um, about some uh, serious surveillance studies that they were doing. So they're basically looking in, in wildlife uh, to see whether or not there was any signs of uh, SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that causes COVID-19. And what they found across four different states was that they had about 33% of the white-tailed deer that they uh, that they actually tested were seropositive for the virus. So but what does that tell us? It, it tells us the animals were exposed to the virus. It doesn't for sure tell us that they were infected. Um, but now it opens up this question, which which we've seen, I think, going on through the pandemic, which is, how many different animal species can get infected by this virus? Because, the, frankly, the list continues to grow. And I think for us, when we think about this idea of trying to get control of transmission and trying to potentially you know, eliminate the virus from, from circulation in our communities, we have to be appreciative of the fact that you know, viruses do tend to like to get into to intermediate hosts and get into other animal species. And if they do that, now it becomes far more complicated to try and and curb uh, any potential for spillover back into communities. Uh, it is so interesting. And, and in, dare I say, it's just another risk factor potentially um, to learn that this has been found in deer and other species? Well, there's, there's certainly, you know, there's some questions that come up with this, right? I mean, there, there was actually a study where they looked at, at infection in deer. So they, they basically, through an experimental approach, infected deer intranasally, so they put it in their, in their nasal passage. And what they showed was that kind of like camels with MERS coronavirus, the animals got mildly sick, um, but they were able to transmit to one another through close contact. And that's really important because what it says is white-tailed deer, if they get infected, in the wild could potentially be able to transmit to one another. And that certainly we've seen this with mink. We've seen this with cats. Um, this is, you know, again, the, the question about uh, SARS-CoV-2, about where can it go? We don't know what that means in regards to transmission back to humans. We don't know how the virus got into deer. Um, and, and again, whether or not this is infection in the wild. 
But certainly we now need to be appreciative of the fact that, oh, this actually not only impacts human health, but from a One Health strategy and from an animal health strategy, we need to be cognizant that this virus may actually be spreading much wider uh, than than we uh, ever thought in the past. And we need to really get those surveillance studies to look to see what different species are being infected. And, and yeah, for example, could it get into the beef industry? Could it get into cattle and chickens this, and into essentially is, into our food um, chain? This is such a big question, right? And when we think about things like, you know, uh, looking at African swine fever, a lot of people don't know that we have basically the virus that's moving around through uh, the global community of, of pigs called African swine fever virus. And ASFV uh, is horrible from a, from a human health standpoint because it really results in, in just decimation of, of basically the pork industry. So we have to think about this idea that we are interlinked with, with animal health and environmental health um, to, to an unbelievable degree. And we think about, again, this idea of viruses moving back and forth across different animal species. It, it is important for, for our health and, and certainly for, for low and middle income areas of the world where they have a heavy reliance on uh, on wildlife for uh, for their their main food source. Exactly, and then you know, could it possibly get into our uh, water sources? I know that in the U.S. anyway, and and I'm not really sure about Canada, but they are actually doing coronavirus testing in the septic systems uh, to see what rates. Go ahead. Yeah, good. I was going to say, so we're we're actually doing quite a bit of wastewater surveillance in in Canada. There's actually a really great program. Uh, that that's doing this. And what you tend to see is that you see spikes in signs of a viral genome within wastewater prior to there being spikes in uh, in out, uh, larger outbreaks or transmission events within communities. So it's actually gives us a little bit of a heads up. It's important. I think it's opened up a, a very, very important area for us for, for doing uh, infectious disease monitoring. Um, but you know, the, the good news is that the virus likely doesn't survive well in, in those types of environments. Uh, from from what we've seen, at least from an experimental standpoint. Um, but we, we need to continue to learn about this virus. It certainly is not going to be over just because of the vaccines. No, and I think so many people, uh, although vaccines and masks, I think, you know, we have some hope, but uh, I yes. think a lot of people thought this was going to be over. Um, you know, I know the film industry was thinking it was going to be over in December. And, you know, initially they said next March and then December and, you know, a lot of people thinking they're returning to uh, going into the offices by September and and also universities and colleges. You know, I think um, this virus is going to be around for a while, but you're the the expert in viruses and reemerging viruses. What what are your thoughts on how long, you know, is the gentleman from yeah. Calgary correct, uh, Kerry, that we're going to have to learn to live with this? And um, And how are you living your life? Are you going... Are you eating in indoor restaurants? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Listen, I'm, I'm back to uh, listen, I'm back to going to to my regular gym. We have uh, you know reduced capacity and mask requirements. I, I have both my vaccine doses, so I, I'm comfortable with the aspect of of where I am in immunity. But I'm I'm still cautious, right? And certainly as as a university professor, I mean we we are at, you know trying to address that big question right now about what what is this going to look like in the fall time. I think. We do have to appreciate the virus is going to continue to circulate. Certainly, 
are globally, it's going to be a few years before I think we get uh, get things completely under control. For me, you know, when I talk about this not being over, I mean, from a research standpoint, we can't just move on. Once once cases drop to a minimum in Canada, that doesn't mean that we all just put COVID aside and go back to our, our regular research jobs. We, we've got a lot to learn. And I think that to me is where we really need to focus this idea of where did things go wrong? What do we still not understand about this virus? And how do we use this to prepare ourselves and get people prepared in areas of the world where they are the most vulnerable to, uh, to these types of emerging infectious diseases? Exactly. And, and something I'm a little bit nervous about is I'm, double, I'm fully vaccinated as well. I'm extremely careful, but I have some plans <laughs> and I don't yeah. want to test positive for COVID, um, you know, I, because that can actually hinder one's plans. And I don't know if people realize that, but, um, you know, I travel quite a bit for work or did in the past. Um, hopefully we'll do that again. But yeah, it could really impact your life. So in many ways, and that's the least of it. You know, the worst of it is the COVID long haulers, which we have uh, discussed in the past. But Dr. Kendrachuk, thank you once again, as usual. Really appreciate our conversations and uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you next week again. Always a pleasure, Maureen. Take care and have a good week. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. COVID has changed so many people's lives and has had such an impact in so many different ways. I often say we may all be traveling in the same sea, but we are certainly in different vessels. And as Canada reopens, those individuals with chronic autoimmune disease may have more challenges navigating and prioritizing their health during these times. Joining me on the line is Dr. Ryan Scott. He's a chiropractor and clinic director at Advantage for Athletes in Toronto, Canada. He helps his patients and clients achieve their ideal life so they can enhance the lives of those they influence. Good evening, Dr. Scott. Lovely to have you on the line. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I'm very interested in some of the services that you offer. You offer evidence-based care, which I love, so to help uh, patients recover. But you also are the first provider of the PONS and the HERO system in Ontario. Can you tell me a little bit about those two uh, services and who they are for and how they help people? Sure, absolutely. Um, So PONS therapy was developed actually in the University of Wisconsin uh, using stimulation of the tongue to help uh, correct neurological issues around balance and gait or walking. Uh, and I know that sounds a little funny uh, to say that stimulation of the tongue might help with your balance and your walking, but it turns out that the nerves uh, that come from the tongue go directly into the brainstem and are have nuclei that are right beside the balance centers of the brain. And and so by stimulating that and then pairing it with the physical therapy we do around walking and balance, uh, we've been able to influence and impact in a positive way people's balance and gait. And that includes those uh, with the autoimmune disorder, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, among other conditions. And would it um, also help? I mean, it's fascinating, I have to say. Uh, Would there be an application for people who have Parkinson's disease or um, they're oftentimes uh, people who are on certain medications shuffle and have difficulty with balance and and also um, any application for spinal cord injury at all? So, yeah, good, good questions. A lot of that is still under investigation. 
Um, as a clinician, I, I'm able to uh, sort of take a technology and use it in different ways that I deem appropriate. Um, I came to the device because my, my father has Parkinson's, and so we were able to impact his balance and gait. But again, I want to be clear that that would be an uh, a label, off-label use of the device. Mm-hmm. But um, when it comes to spinal cord injury, it can be a little bit of a challenge because we do need that connection between the brain and the body uh, in order to have that impact that we're trying to have. Mm-hmm. So if there is a severing of the spinal cord, this isn't the therapy for them. But neurological conditions that affect the brain and can have, you know, there's potential down the line uh, for many applications in stroke. Um, we have great success and um, success with evidence in uh, traumatic brain injury. And, of course, that's how I got involved as well was sport-related concussion. Um, and then down the road, too, there could be a, you know, a potential for a performance uh, enhancement, uh, you know, using right. it in you know stimulating the brain to help somebody develop their skills uh you know the the possibilities are really um far-reaching yeah it's a it's amazing it's fascinating because people who uh suffer with autoimmune diseases like the ones that you have mentioned uh ms and, and parkinson's um and and other medical conditions that affect a person's balance even as people age their mm-hmm. balance is um, affected, right? They don't have quite the same balance, and they often do exercises. But, but uh, the PONS treatment uh, and what does PONS stand for? A portable neuromodulation stimulator. So it, it's uh, just a it's a fancy play on words because the PONS is uh, the region of the brain that right. is being impacted uh, by the device. So they cleverly uh, came up with the name that matched it. But yeah, I agree a hundred percent that the you know helping people with their balance as they age could be a a great place that we could have influence. And um, yeah, it's been a wonder to work with. Uh, You know, I've I've seen some great results and it's really about improving that quality of life, you know, giving people uh, a longer time with their quality of balance and walking. You know, it's not a cure for MS, but it, it can certainly improve that quality of life and extend that time that you can move around, uh, with, with greater ease. And, and being mobile and having good mobility is so important for anybody, but especially sure. those with an autoimmune disease or, or as they age. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's just fascinating. Tell me a little bit about the HURO then, H-E-U-R-O. Uh, so I guess that, that uh, involves also a company called Health Tech Connect, uh, Health, and uh, it's using a um, device that uses a EEG brain scan, um, and it really came together as we uh, brought it into Canada so we were, would um, be able to scan the brain and do a, uh, a proper assessment. And so we, they created a device called the NeuroCatch, which reads three brain waves um, around audio um, and also your startle reflex and your higher cognitive function. And it allows us to, you know, chart a patient's progress and potentially see how well they're doing in a very objective manner because we don't want to, um, you know, sort of play around here. We want to make sure that we're getting good results and that we can objectively compare their beginning and their end so that they can see that they've improved. Uh, Sometimes in improving the brain, the 
increments are very small. And so we want to be able to pick up those differences and, and see that progress because progress is what motivates people to keep going. It, it certainly is. And so that would be something that at the beginning would be like a baseline uh, brainwave test that you would do? Correct. At the yeah, beginning of doing, therapy? Yeah, a pond therapy program typically lasts 14 weeks and involves um, daily training with the stimulation device. And so we want to have like benchmarks along the way, a baseline test that we do at the start and then, you know, midway through the program. And then at the exit, we do it just to be able to sit down with the patient and demonstrate uh, potential changes that have occurred at the neurological level, even if the outward, um, you know, initial change isn't quite as dramatic as, as, as the change that's occurring in their brain. Right, but it gives them something to hang their hat on, basically, to, to exactly. note their improvement. Exactly. You want, you want to know you're getting somewhere because that is what helps you move forward. You know, and um, I do a lot of reading around this subject and, you know, helping people improve with the brain. I, I mean, you've probably seen different things over the years. You mentioned spinal cord injury and, you know, Christopher Reeve was always trying to push forward after spinal cord injury. But changing the brain and, and neurological change is so slow sometimes it can be frustratingly sl- uh, slow. And so um, giving people that understanding that it's improving is so important because without that motivation to continue, a lot of people fall into despair and, and don't want to continue. So um, it's super important that we have these benchmarks that help motivate people to continue. Exactly. And I think what you're giving to people is hope. And when people have hope, I, I think they can carry on. And, you know, and as you say, it does motivate them. And and you mentioned the slow progress of the brain, uh, especially as people are recovering from a stroke or recovering from a traumatic brain injury. Um, and it can take, you know, upwards of 18 months for people to get back um, to where they're going to be. Uh, but But is this something that over those 14 weeks, what kind of percentages are you seeing um, with him with regard to well, when it, it, when it comes to traumatic brain injury, that's the one we have the, the best study in the 14 weeks. And it was, you know, around 70% of patients were seeing a statistically significant change to the point where they were uh, no longer a fall risk. Um, they were uh, getting back to basically normal balance. And then the number uh, went even higher, closer to 80 to 90%. If you were looking at just a change uh, in the positive, maybe not all the way back to normal. And again, this was in traumatic brain injury patients uh, that were at least a year post-injury. And so um, in a lot of cases, those are the people that have been sort of written off in, in the healthcare community as, you know, exactly. this is as good as you're going to get. And, you know, they've sort of failed other um, treatments or, or they didn't see the success in other treatments. So then they they were put into the study with the ponds and uh, and started to see a dramatic change. So that that was key. So you're looking at a very high success rate in that particular cohort. It's fascinating. I would love to have you back and talk a little bit more about this. Unfortunately, we're up against the clock. What's the best way no, for I people understand. to? Thanks. What's the best way for people to uh, learn or get more information? Book an appointment. Yeah. Well. So I mean. For us, it's uh, advantageforathletes.com, and that's the number four in the middle, Advantage for Athletes. Uh, for those who are looking for PONS therapy, we are available nationwide, so PONSTreatment.ca is the best place to go because they do have a clinic locator uh, for the clinics available nationwide. So I 
you know, as That's much awesome. as I'd love to treat everybody myself, I, I you know, understand right. the challenges facing people. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. So glad to have you here with me this evening. If you have any questions or comments, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. In this hour of the program, we're going to be talking about sex after a heart attack and uh, your emails. Uh, But right now, I want to talk about a subject that just incensed me this week. And I don't know if it incensed you at all, but I wrote a letter to Jeff Molson, who is the CEO and uh, president and co-owner of the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, head on over to LinkedIn if you want to read the letter. I, I just feel like if I read it to you, it may sound uh, obnoxious on my part or haughty, and I don't mean to come across that way uh, in any way. I am incredibly incensed in part because I see patients in my clinical practice who have experienced the trauma that um, involves a young woman in this particular story. Um, the Montreal Canadiens and Jeff Molson have drafted, as you probably know, Logan Mayu, and what they have done essentially is endorse a culture of violence against women. And, and really, this is shameful. And there are so many people speaking out about this. It doesn't seem like uh, the Montreal Canadiens are doing much about it. Uh, but I was also incensed by the apology um, of Jeff Molson. Um, in his apology to Canadians, I, I felt it was just very patronizing. And there were a few things in there that I, I did not um, feel were um, were very appropriate. In fact, they were very unwoke, if you will. Last year, Logan Mayu was convicted in Sweden for, photograph- for photographing and circulating a compromising photo of a young woman without her consent. The Montreal Canadiens drafted him anyway. And, uh, you know, in Jeff Molson's apology, he spoke about how he's going to make this better by aiming to raise awareness about this issue. He certainly has done that uh, and educate men and women about it. And what I want to say to him is that there is absolutely no need to educate women about this. We know about this all too well. And and yes, that's not to say that men have not experienced uh, sexual abuse. They certainly have. But to be honest with you, it's not typically by women, although that can happen, but it is more typically by men. But there is absolutely nothing that Jeff Molson can teach anybody about sexual uh, assault, trauma. I deal with these women in my clinical practice uh, for a long time. Um, Women do not need education. They have too much experience with it already. And what, what Jeff Molson and the Canadians have done is minimized my use victim's experience um, you know, to say that, it, and he also referenced in his letter, he referenced, so sorry that an 18-year-old had to go through this at that time. It's not just at that time, Jeff Molson. Let me tell you and anybody who is listening that there is a lifelong impact that criminal behavior like Mayu's has on a victim. And so this is basically, this doesn't even describe it well, but this is what happens. Victims of sexual assault experience anxiety, low sexual desire, shame, fear, guilt, obsessive compulsive disorder. They have difficulty with intimate relationships. They experience painful sex. They use substances to numb the pain. They live in panic and fear. They are constantly thinking about what happened to them and trying to make it right. 
it is extremely, extremely damaging to somebody. It is not the trauma of what occurred at the time. Violence against women, particularly intimate partner violence, and that's what this was, and sexual violence is a violation of a woman's human rights. And worldwide, 27% of women aged 15 to 49 years who have been in a relationship report that they have been subjected to physical and or sexual violence by their intimate partner. Crimes like Logan Mayu's affect a woman's physical, emotional, and mental health, psychological and spiritual health for the rest of her life. The Montreal Canadiens drafted him anyway. And plays like this one perpetuate violence against women. And to make excuses for this, you are guilty as sin. There is something wrong with people who commit these types of crimes. And it seems like Logan Mayu even knows that. He said, don't draft me. Anyway, eventually karma will prevail. I don't wish bad on anybody. I promise you I don't. But this will play out in a way that it's meant to play out. And you know what? The apology was worthless. We need to change the violence against women in this country, especially intimate partner violence where women lose their lives uh, and women's mental health and is severely impacted for the rest of their lives. Women will tell me, and they're in their 60s, and they will come into my clinical practice and tell me that they were sexually abused as a child, and I am the first person that they have ever told because they feel that they have to tell me because they may be there for intimate health reasons. They have a fear of an internal exam, uh, and they just want me to know. And so that, uh, I mean, typically I provide trauma-informed care, and uh, many, many healthcare practitioners do. This is a necessary evil that we must provide trauma-informed care because so many women have experienced this kind of abuse and it's horrific. Uh, So I really don't know at this point (laughs) what they can do about it, but I, for one, will never, ever watch a Montreal Canadiens game ever again. Um, I, I am just incensed by it and I think we need to raise our voices around this subject and this matter and we need to keep this conversation going because it otherwise it is never ever going to end and when people like Jeff Molson reward somebody for that kind of behavior and and provide them with a privilege that is only given to the very few um there's something wrong very very wrong with the whole situation and I am disgusted I don't know how you feel about it but feel free to email me nurse talk at hotmail com And please don't email me the ones about, well, this happens to men too, because I'm talking about violence against women right now, male violence against women in particular. Okay, moving on to another subject. I wanted to address this um, uh, email that I received from somebody. I actually did a talk. Uh, all my talks are virtual these days. And so I did one for Amica, Amica's residences are across the country. And, um, you know, I love that, uh, that, uh, long-term care home 
because they are, I mean, it's not the first time I've spoken for them. It's I've spoken many in many of their facilities across the country and, you know, they're very proactive. They want to educate uh, and any long-term care home that's going to have me in to talk about sex, sexual health, sexuality, um, you know, they're, they're on the, uh, I'm on their team. Um, because it's a very important issue, especially as people age, because oftentimes there are so many issues that occur. Uh, intimacy is frowned upon. Older people are discriminated against, in particular, around their sex lives and sexuality. Uh, people feel that older people don't have sex. They think that um, how could somebody in their whatever, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, be attracted to somebody in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but it does. The, the chemistry does not stop and the sex doesn't end, even if you go into a long-term care home. Um, but the other really, really sad part about a lot of people who go into long-term care homes is they actually, uh, those who are, um, you know, those who goes gay individuals are, um, having to go back into the closet once they go into a long-term care home because they are discriminated against, quite frankly, and, and they may need the care, but it may not be an LGBTQI-friendly uh, care home. And, and we need to open our eyes to that as well in this country and in this world. We need to just accept everybody for who they are so that we can have the most healthy world possible. But quickly, I'm going to get to this question. I'd like to find out how to best deal with the subject mentioned above. And the subject was vaginal atrophy. I've been dealing with it for many years. It's not getting any better. Tried to make an appointment with a female gynecologist, but I can't get an appointment to see her until September or October. My family doctor has sent her a referral, but I still have to wait that long time. I have a lot of difficulty sleeping at night due to a burning sensation. So vaginal atrophy or genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM is uh, occurs at, typically after the menopause, when estrogen receptors decrease in the urogenital tract. Um, I see that this woman is waiting for a female gynecologist to get treated, and she's going to wait months. Well, may, uh, uh, general practitioners can treat this. You don't necessarily need uh, to wait to see a specialist to have treatment for this, but you could treat it yourself. There are personal moisturizers that are hormone-free. Um, what I recommend is FEM. I don't recommend anything that is compounded or, you know, somebody who's just looking to make money, forget it. You want it, something that has actually been approved by Health Canada. So, and the one that's most hygienic and um, has natural ingredients, hyaluronic acid, vitamin E, it's like a rain shower for your vagina, ladies. It's FEM. Um, it's the most hygienic and it works like a hot dam. So I recommend that. So you can do that. Just go to the drugstore and pick some up. You can go to my website, MaureenMcGrath.com. I have uh, it available there for patients as well. But also your doctor, and speak to your doctor about prescribing a low-dose localized estrogen therapy like Premarin cream or Estragine cream. And uh, because there are the symptoms of vaginal atrophy or GSM, genital urinary syndrome and menopause, are vaginal dryness, painful sex, thin watery discharge, burning sensation, itching, um, post uh, uh, postcoital bleeding. Um, so, and, and oftentimes women will think they, they don't know what's going on, but it's very, very distressing and very, very disturbing for women. So um, there are treatments. You don't have to wait that long and you can certainly get your lives back. And it is lifelong therapy. Okay. So you can't stop taking it 
Vaginal dryness is the only symptom of menopause that does not go away and on all of the accompanying symptoms that I mentioned as well. You will rebound once you stop taking treatment. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.